Isaac Shade here, co-host of the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Join Andy Patton and me every Monday as we break down all the buzzer-beating action, conference rivalry games, and need-to-know bubble matchups ahead of the NCAA tournament. Check out the Locked On College Basketball Podcast every Monday, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Well, Dan Lanning's got a heck of a staff, and it's one that can definitely win the Big Ten. And they've done something that Eugene hasn't seen in a while. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked on Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day and your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. So if you have not already, please like, comment, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to or watch this show, which today is brought to you by FanDuel. Make every moment more. New customers join today and you'll get $200 in bonus bets. If your first bet of $5 or more wins, visit FanDuel.com slash Locked on to get started so we'll talk about the staff we'll talk about a lot of things on today's show busy busy who says it's an off season with nothing to discuss i completely disagree oregon staff headlined by dan lanning will stein the oc tosh lupoy the dc chris hampton don't under don't underestimate the impact i think he had on the defense this past year which improved dramatically for the ducks the co-dc now the all-around defensive backs coach that's a staff that can win you a Big Ten championship. Oregon, along with Ohio State, is going to be and should be one of the two favorites to win the Big Ten next year. When you look at the offseason that Oregon has had, bringing in quality transfers, bringing in guys, or bringing back guys, rather, that were great players for Oregon a season ago, guys like Jordan Birch or Jeffrey Boss or Terrence Ferguson or Tez Johnson. They've got a lot of really good things going for them. But one of those things is something that Oregon fans actually haven't experienced in quite a long time. And that is, on the whole, though not entirely, Demetrius Martin left to Michigan State, there is staff continuity here. And this is not something that, that should ever be overlooked when you're talking about a team and how they're going to compete in a given season. Now, we saw Will Stein in his first year take the reins, and Chris Hampton was a new coach, and Oregon was a better team a season ago. Those two guys were definitely, individually, reasons why that was the case. But when you have staff continuity after a 12-win season, that is highly uncommon. How uncommon is it in Oregon? Well, all of Oregon's 12-win seasons in, in the history of Oregon football have come since 2010 when they first did. It went 12-0 and and played for the national championship game. A great moment to remind everyone in the world that Dyer was down anyway. I think that Oregon has had a lot of good things going for them since then. You know what they haven't had? Staff continuity. I got this question from Drastic underscore MC. Podcast question. When is the last time an Oregon coach kept both the DC and the OC for two straight years? Rhetorical question, kinda. No, I don't think so. How does keeping Stein and Lupoy raise our ceiling, especially this season? The answer to your question is the 2011-2012 season in which Oregon still had Chip Kelly as the head coach, still had Mark Helfrich as the offensive coordinator, and Nick Aliotti as the defensive coordinator. It's been 13 years. That's a long time. I guess 12, because it's 2012 was the second year and whatnot. But it's been over a decade since Oregon has gone with the same 
top coaches from one year to the next. That's a good thing, by the way, because it means that Oregon has won a lot. It means people want a part of what Oregon has been building under different coaching administrations, mind you. And that also is a testament to to how good of a job Oregon is. And Dan Lanning talked recently on a podcast about Oregon can be the best job in the country. I think he's being a little bit, not facetious, but, you know, overzealous, overexcited and whatnot. But guess what? That's also something that I want for my head coach. So I was happy to hear him say that, even though I don't agree with his assessment there. It certainly is a great job. That has proven to be true because every coach that's come to Oregon has won. Even Willie Taggart had a winning record in his one year with with the Ducks as a head coach. So 2011 and 2012 was the last time Oregon had this level of staff continuity, particularly at the top. What happened in that 2012 season? Well, if you'd had a 12-team playoff back then, heck, if you'd had a four-team playoff back then, boy, oh boy, Oregon might have been in. Oregon might have played for a national championship game. Did you know that that's the only season in which Chip Kelly ever coached Marcus Mariota as Oregon's starting quarterback? That's the last time this happened, and that is a great sign for the Ducks going into the Big Ten. Because when you're facing new opponents and staffs you haven't seen before and different styles of play or different environments or, or you know whatever you want to bring up as Oregon goes into a new conference, you want to have as many things within your control, within your purview that you can rely on, that you can count on as you can. And having both the offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator back is a really, really good thing. And Make no mistake about it, Chris Hampton reportedly, the co-defensive coordinator for the Ducks, turned down Power 5 defensive coordinator opportunities. I think that's a testament to two things. Number one, the, the size of his role within the ranks of the coaching staff on that side of the ball. And number two, what he believes Dan Lanning and the Ducks can do this season. Oregon has one of the five best odds, according to FanDuel, to win the national championship next year. This is a team that can get to that sort of level. This is a team, this is a coaching staff that is capable of getting Oregon to win a conference championship in its first year in the Big Ten. And certainly this is a difficult league, but Oregon has put itself in a great position. And I think that you know, to the second part of the question there, how does keeping Stein and Lupoy raise our ceiling, especially this season? Oregon's ceiling can be as high as, as you want it to be because we, we saw what this staff is capable of a year ago. Now, they had Bo Nix, they had Troy Franklin, they had Jackson Powers Johnson. Those are key places, key pieces to replace going into next year. But look at the guys they brought in. Evan Stewart, five-star wide receiver from Texas A&M. Dylan Gabriel, experienced veteran quarterback who completed almost 70% of his passes last year, 30 touchdowns and six picks. He ran for 12 touchdowns as well. I think he can fit Will Stein's offense tremendously well. You look at Iapani Lalaulu, who was the sixth offensive lineman last year. Did anyone notice a problem in the Fiesta Bowl against Liberty? I didn't. He was playing center in that game. JPJ opted out and is going to get himself drafted and has raised his stock a little bit down at the Senior Bowl and the festivities and whatnot. By the way, Bo Nix had a nice Senior Bowl as well. If Tez Walker had been able to catch a long ball, the first play would have been a, a flea flicker bomb for 35, 40 yards down the field from Captain Checkdown. So I, I think that for for the Ducks, they have done an admirable job replacing key departures from a season ago. I'll talk more about that in the secondary a little bit later. But 
having guys that are back, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, you saw guys like Jeffrey Bossa take a big leap from their first year in the system to the second year in the system. And that sort of stuff matters a great deal. You understand what your coach is asking of you. You understand your assignments. You can play more just on instincts and you get all those fundamentals nailed down a lot easier than you can in year one. Jeffrey Bossa went from a guy who, according to PFF, was a liability for Oregon's defense to a second-team all-pack 12 selection, deservedly so. And between the two linebacker spots, the Mac and the moneybacker positions, he, he is the guy that is the, the, the field general for Oregon defensively. That's the sort of growth that you can see with this staff. So I, I love everything the staff is bringing to the table, and I love that they are all back. And that's a major advantage. You can't say that everywhere in college football. Ryan Day has brought in Bill O'Brien to be his offensive coordinator. There's no guarantee that that'll work. I, I think it will because Bill O'Brien has a good track record being an OC in, in college football slash a head coach going back to his time at Penn State. But it's new. It's different. Ryan Day isn't calling plays anymore. That's changed. That's new. For Oregon, it's okay. We got to make sure we get the talent and then run everything back the way we did it last year. That's a lot easier to do than, okay, we have a new situation. We have to adapt or we have to change our philosophy. Look at James Franklin over at Penn State. They're going to be a good team next year. They lost their defensive coordinator, Manny Diaz, now the head coach at Duke. Look at Michigan. No more Jim Harbaugh. They've got Sharon Moore, but they don't have their defensive coordinator, Jesse Minner, from last year either. So it's an advantage for Oregon to have that sort of continuity and makes them, I think, really emphasizes that they're a conference contender, a playoff contender. Oregon should make the playoff next year. If they don't, it would be a huge disappointment. And I love what the staff brought to the table. I love what they've shown. I love the trajectory. And I think for the 2024 season, it raises the expectation level. That's that that's that's where Oregon is at. There's still so much more to get to on the show today. Still a ton to get to. We're getting to FanDuel too, because happy Super Bowl to all of you who celebrate from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. If you're like me, Super Bowl Sunday is all about scoring the best seat on the couch, grabbing your favorite football snacks, and placing some super bets. FanDuel has so many ways for you to end the season with a W or two or three. Not only can you bet on who will win Super Bowl 58, but FanDuel also has bets for which players will score a touchdown, how many points will be scored, and so much more. New customers join today, and you'll get $200 in bonus bets if your first bet of $5 or more wins. Just visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to sign up. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on to sign up now. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sportsbook partner of the NFL. March Madness is right around the corner. If you want to win your office pool, you need to stay caught up with all the college basketball action with the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Every Monday, Andy Patton and Isaac Shade recap the biggest stories in college basketball, keep you up to date on the NCAA tournament bubble, and get you ready for the upcoming week of games. From the Big East to the Mountain West and everywhere in between, Andy and Isaac have college hoops covered on the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Mailbag, mailbag, mailbag. I love me. 
some good mailbag time. If you want to be in the mailbag, you can always do that, especially in the offseason. I love answering your guys' questions, YouTube comments, or hit me up on X, formerly known as Twitter, at CFB or at LockedOnDucks. DMs and mentions wide open. If you want to be a Locked On Ducks insider, you can do that. You get even more thoughts from me here at the show, including thoughts going into a game, thoughts during a game, coming out of a game. You can talk to me one-on-one, and perhaps best of all, you get priority mailbag access. Go join at Subtext over in the link that is below wherever you're listening to or watching this show. That was a nice, very not smooth transition into uh, the mailbag here at the end, but as long as you get the idea. This from user UW3OU4LV3Q. I'm going to go with that's a random YouTube generated name. Hi, Spencer. I was wondering what you think about our secondary ceiling next year. Do you think it will be better than this past year? Thanks. So Oregon's 2023 secondary was quite good. You had a first team all-conference selection in Kyrie Jackson. You had a second team selection in Evan Williams. That's a pretty productive unit overall. The key players for the Ducks last year were Kyrie Jackson, Steve Stevens IV, Tysheem Johnson, Evan Williams, Jaleel Florence, Dante Manning, Nico Reed, Triquez Bridges, and maybe you know a sprinkling of, of Roderick Pleasant in there as well. You had Cole Martin play from time to time, but those are the main characters. For 2024, Oregon secondary will look something like this. Taishim Johnson is back once again after an honorable mention Pac-12 season. Jabbar Muhammad comes over from Washington. Kobe Savage comes over from Kansas State, where, or Kansas State, where he was a second-team All-Big 12 selection. You've got Jaleel Florence. You bring in Brandon Johnson as well from Duke, who was a two-time ACC honorable mention selection over there for the Blue Devils. And somebody who Mike Elko, the head coach at Texas A&M, wanted to bring with him, and Dan Lang and Oregon were able to go get him because they've been recruiting very well. Other guys I'd expect to see next year, Sione Laulea, the number one overall Juco corner uh, in the transfer portal cycle, Dante Manning, that's, that's, that's a guy that we just know. We know what he is. I don't expect Dante Manning to take some big leap. He just is what he is. And if Dante Manning is one of your number two corners, that's pretty good secondary. That's pretty good secondary. Cam Alexander, who grades as a four-star transfer according to 24-7 Sports, coming over from UTSA. Nico Reed, still on Oregon's roster. I won't be surprised if that changes in the spring window, but we shall see. Maybe some combination of Roderick, Pre- Roderick Pleasant or Dalen Austin, who are both 2023 pretty highly sought-after four-star recruits. And then I, I imagine as well between Aaron Flowers Tyler Turner, Cody DeCamera, who are freshman, sophomore, sophomore, slash redshirt freshman for the last two, most likely, across the board. I suspect one of those guys will be in the mix somewhere, somehow. When I look, why did I lay out all of these names? Because when I look at this year's secondary, I see this year's unit as capable of being better. Kyrie Jackson, first team all Pac-12. Guess what? Jabbar Muhammad can play at that sort of level. So that's a wash. I think those two guys are as good as one another. So so that's a wash, no drop-off. I don't think there's a big increase there because Jackson was very good. But when you when you hold steady, okay, that's pretty good. Next guy who was one of the starting five, Steve Stevens. Compare him to Kobe Savage. Steve Stevens had a good career with Oregon, played a lot of football, is reportedly an awesome guy, really veteran presence in that room, and a leader for the safeties. Never, in my view, sniffed an all-conference selection. Kobe Savage has done it a couple times with Kansas State. To me, that's an upgrade. Tysheem Johnson, 
is is the same as you know the Tyshim Johnson we saw last year. Evan Williams out of that room, that's certainly a loss. And Jaleel Florence, assuming he comes back healthy, again, the same guy. So I think Oregon secondary has the potential to be better than it was a season ago because Brandon Johnson being in the mix, can he be as good as Evan Williams? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Williams had a great year for the Ducks. And he and Johnson both are guys that make a lot of plays down around the line of scrimmage. You know, Evan Williams was just a faster version of Bennett Williams, though Evan was a little bit better in coverage this year. I think that Brandon Johnson coming in, he's shown he's, you know, not all conference first or second team so far in the ACC. Then again, he hasn't been coached by... Oregon staff and there are a lot of really good defensive coaches there and I'm not saying Mike Elko and company weren't a good staff for him over at Duke but I'll take Dan Lanning, Tosh Lupoi, Chris Hampton that's (laughs) that's a heck of a top three lineup of coaches to to be playing this guy week in and week out telling him how he can get better using him in the scheme and such so even if Johnson is like just a little bit a little bit less productive or not quite as good as Evan Williams, I still see the secondaries having a higher ceiling. And when you've got guys coming off the bench that are Dante Manning, who's got elite physical traits, not always the best ball skills in the world, but certainly has his moments. I think he's a really high level number two corner. Even if you just look at the depth chart from a season ago, Triquez Bridges is someone who rotated in. And if Dante Manning kind of, you know, is forced backwards into that Triquez Bridges role, the way that Triquez in 2022 was a starter, one of Oregon's top two corners out there, he got moved into a backup role. If Manning does that next year, Dante Manning is better than Triquez Bridges. I, I, I would take Manning in, in that calculation there. Cam Alexander was an all-conference player over at UTSA. Nico Reed is just solid. nothing special, not a liability. He's just solid. And then you have the two talented freshmen, and we'll we'll see if Aaron Flowers plays as a true freshman or Tyler Turner or Cody DeCambra. I I think Oregon secondary has got the potential to be better than last year. At the very least, at the very least, I expect them to be as good as they were a season ago, and I like where their depth chart is sitting. I mean, they – They've got a lot of questions to answer as to, you know, who's starting, how healthy does Florence come off his injury? He's going to miss spring football. But the depth is just unquestioned at at all of those spots. And will they move guys around? You know, could you see a Roderick Pleasant play safety? Could you see a Dalen Austin move to that sort of role? I don't know. I, I don't know. I think there are some questions there, but I'm not concerned about the talent. I think it's at least as good as last year, probably a touch better. This question from Big One Dog Twenty Three. I gotta tell you, I laughed at that name just because of the Tiger Woods meme. Hey, Big Dog, um, <laughs> it's just crazy. Some people know what I'm talking about. Some people don't. It's a fantastic meme. One of the best I've ever seen. Question: Is NFL? This was in relation to Gatlin Bear, Oregon's latest wide receiver commit, who I talked about on yesterday's show. Is NFL age-based eligibility? Or will he need at least three years? Could he possibly, in quotes, go pro after one year? I know, I know, just talking, quote unquote, possible. So I think it's an interesting question to ask, because for those who don't know, Gatlin Bear 
is a 2024 commit for the Ducks. He's a highly rated four-star composite guy, and 24-7's got him as a five-star. Nobody else does, so it depends on where you look. I like the 24-7 sports composite personally because it's putting together what everyone thinks about him, and I'm a fan of more information rather than less to determine how to feel about a guy. But super highly rated recruit. I am really high on him. Talked about on yesterday's show. You can go check it out if, if you missed it. Why I think he can be the next Troy Franklin. I really believe that. That is not me just saying stuff because it's early February. That is me saying I watch his film and he moves like Troy Franklin and he reminds me of Troy Franklin, but he won't be on campus playing football till 2026. So back to the eligibility question here. According to NFL.com, to be eligible for the draft, players must have been out of high school for at least three years and must have used up their college eligibility before the start of the next college football season underclassmen and players who have graduated before using all their college eligibility may request the league's approval to enter the draft early. I am interpreting that as technically speaking, yes, he could go to the NFL after one year. I don't suspect that he will, but that is technically possible if he's able to graduate. But my understanding is that won't happen because when he is serving an LDS mission, I don't believe he is going to be attending classes and accumulating the credits you need to graduate from school. So I expect Gatlin Bear to be physically ready and emotionally mature once he gets to campus in 2026 and make an impact that year. And then if he is able to graduate in two years, well, you know, maybe, maybe he's a three-year guy. I think that's going to be a foundational piece of Oregon's offense in a couple of years. And, and I don't expect him to, you know, try to rush to get out to go to the NFL. Because look at Troy Franklin, right? Guy who I'm comparing him to. Franklin didn't pop until his second year, right? He had an 800-yard season. He only caught 18 balls for over 200 yards in his first year with the Ducks. Then he had an 800-plus yard season. He broke out. And then last year, best receiving year in Oregon football history, at least in my lifetime. But statistically, is pretty much up there. Is second all-time in single-season receptions, first in touchdowns, first in yards. So pretty darn good there. Uh, I don't anticipate that being a problem, though. Somehow, we're 21 minutes into the show, and we still got more to get to. Isn't that great? I completely agree. eBay Motors is great, too. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. eBay Guaranteed Fit, only available to U.S. customers, eligible items only, Exclusions apply. Mailbag, mailbag, mailbag. We roll along. This one from Nick. I'm not a Prime fan. I imagine you enjoyed the 42-6 beatdown the Ducks gave him at Dotson Stadium this past year. I heard an interview with him, though, that I wanted to ask you about. He spoke of the difference between NIL and all of the collectives, saying the collectives are the real issue. Do you have an opinion? Well, that's like asking, 
if the sky is blue, whether I have an opinion. There are very few things I don't have an opinion on, sports or otherwise. Sometimes I don't. If I don't know enough about something on this particular matter, I do have an opinion. So Prime, in this instance, is correct in saying that the issue NIL has created is not actually about what name, image, and likeness really means. The collectives are entities, and this is something that as college football is undergoing and college sports in general are undergoing just groundbreaking, life-altering, glass-shattering sort of change, Dartmouth men's basketball players were just deemed to be employees of the university. That could have some wide-ranging implications. That's a different discussion, though. For this one, Prime is correct because the collectives are an entity that is is not affiliated with the university. They don't represent the university in in an official capacity, but they do, of course, help the university get certain players. And this is something Tennessee has taken the NCAA to court on, and they're probably, and they should, going to win. Because the NCAA said you can't have the NIL collective recruiting, but they can have an it's all it's all a complicated mess. All right, I don't want to dive into that sort of stuff, but the NCAA does not look particularly good in that matter. And the issues that people talk about surrounding collectives is that they aren't actually there to facilitate name, image, and likeness opportunities. They are just there to collect a pool of money and to just give it to players. And then under the guise of, well, he's promoting this, that, and the other thing, saying, okay, he's benefiting from his NIL. Name, image, and likeness. The best example of it is something that I and everyone else don't have a problem with. You don't have a problem with this either, I assure you. Caleb Williams and Bryce Young, a couple of Heisman Trophy winners. What do you think about when you think of them right now, right? Going to the NFL. Oh, yeah, they're in those Dr. Pepper ads, okay? They're being able to make money because their name, image, and likeness is used in the commercial is what NIL fundamentally is. And I don't think anyone has a problem with that. I don't think anyone should have a problem with that. Where the issue comes in is when collectives are involved, because then you run into situations like the Jaden Rashada recruitment. He was going to go to Miami. Then he was going to go to Florida with a $13 million NIL deal, only to discover, allegedly, this is what I know about the situation. I can't say I've uh, done a deep dive on it only to discover that that money was not actually there. And then he went to the NCAA and said, I would like to be released of my national letter of intent because they promised me the the money here. But Florida wasn't actually punished for the collective acting the way it did. The collective eventually, uh, I'm pretty sure, dissolved because the university was not overseeing, regulating, or implementing what that collective was doing. So these collectives get run by big donors, boosters, and individuals who want to see a particular program thrive by getting money to to college athletes. But the collectives are the ones that create the issues that people have with NIL. Well, they're just buying players. Regular NIL isn't doing that, okay? Regular NIL is like, for instance, you see this a lot in women's athletics, players getting contacted by companies say, hey, you have 200,000 followers on Instagram. We'll pay you blah de blah de blah to do blah de blah de blah posts. And that, again, is not 
what NIL originally is, the collectives have kind of begun to become power players in that space. And that can get to back alley arrangements and voided contracts, money that wasn't there. You had Walter Nolan, for instance. He was at Texas A&M. Oregon wanted him out of the transfer portal. He went to Ole Miss instead with Lane Kiffin. Post on his Instagram story, hey, if you're transferring to Texas A&M and they offer you NIL money, contact me. Just want some good info there. That's the sort of stuff he's talking about. So he's absolutely right that collectives can, not always, but can generate problems because they can just exist and operate and no one really oversees them. They're just there and they're not affiliated with the universities. They're university adjacent of sorts. But then when something goes wrong, well, the university isn't liable for that because, well, it was the collective that was doing it. But then they've got too much autonomy to act the way they want. So, yeah, I'll, I'll put a pin in that now. That's where I stand. And Oregon has not run into these sorts of issues. Oregon has one of the best NIL collectives in the entire country. And I think that's to the Ducks' benefit on the recruiting trail. All right. I'll close with a fun question and just talk about uh, something with men with men's hoops here because an interesting question came down uh, via the comments section. And the question was, would Oregon be going 23-8 and eight, be good enough to get into the NCAA tournament? That would be them going 8-1 and one in their next nine games, which after they lost to a 10-11 and 11, much improved, but still 10 and 11 UCLA team on the road, I've got my doubts about. But if Oregon went 23 and 8, would that get them into the tournament? So as I record this show, I looked earlier today, Joe Lenardi has not updated his bracketology. Before the UCLA loss, Oregon was a next four out team. They are certainly no longer on the bubble at this point in time. If Oregon were to go 8 and 1, and let's say even that one loss were to Arizona, and they don't have a top 25 win all year, 23-8 and eight is really hard to disregard from the NCAA tournament. I would be more than a little shocked. I would be as shocked to see the Ducks get excluded from the tournament at 23-8 and eight as I would be to see them go 23-8 and eight at this point in time because this is just where the team unfortunately is at. And, and I, my prediction here down the stretch, you know, they've got nine games left. I bet they go six and three. They need to go eight and one or nine and zero oh to get the at-large spot. But if they were to pick up wins against both Colorado and Utah, lose to Arizona and beat everybody else who's not that good and isn't doing anything for you, it's just a bunch of UCLA's except for Washington State. Washington State is good. That could be a quality win. So if you add a win against Washington State and you add a win against Colorado and Utah, those would all be quad one wins. And if you couple that with a bunch of other wins at 23 and 8, even though Oregon's resume isn't the best, I have not seen a power five team, power six in college basketball, be left out of the tournament at 23 and 8. I would be surprised. But again, I'm not anticipating that. Like this feels to me, like it's Pac-12 tournament or bust, I'll never give up hope because I would love to see Oregon get in in the tournament. And that's just the way I operate. So 
Let's close with this question from Balin, who asked a couple questions. I'm going to get to the first one uh, later this week, but the second one, a golf question. I'm totally new to golf outside of one trip to the driving range in my life, but I want to start going with my father-in-law occasionally. I barely know anything, so do you have any beginner tips for those of us who are just getting into it or considering it to make the experience less frustrating? I do know that it can sometimes be a very frustrating game to learn mechanically, or at least so I've heard. It's a frustrating game to learn between the ears, but it is a frustrating game to learn mechanically as well. My biggest recommendation, and I cannot stress this enough for someone who hasn't played, do not go on the course right away. Go to the driving range. Learn what it feels like with your body to to swing a club because it feels different for everyone. It is different for everyone. Get comfortable. Be able to hit the ball consistently. Learn how to chip. Learn how to putt. I'm not saying like two or three trips. I'm saying like several weeks or months of regular driving range attendance and do not go on the golf course. I heard a story from someone recently that in France, they have a test that you have to pass to go on a golf course, and I absolutely love it. There's an etiquette component, and then you have to play three holes without making anything worse than a double bogey. That's what they. That's what you have to do before you go on the course. That That's a good place to be. Go to the range, stay there, and then go on the course later. Appreciate everyone listening. I'll see you next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And as always, go Ducks.